The government of Brazil announced today they are declaring martial law in the cities of Brasilia, Sao Paulo, and Salvador following outbreaks of a new and mysterious disease that has spread quickly across the country. Brazil's officials stress that the situation is contained, even as new cases are reported in Venezuela and Colombia. There is still no name for the disease, or even an official recognition of it by the U.S. government. But with infection rates continuing across the global community and new cases accelerating, experts in the medical field warn the United States must start preparing for the pandemic's introduction in North America. We are taking this new disease seriously here at the Centers for Disease Control, and for that reason we have dispatched an investigative mission to South America to perform an assessment. However, the stories about the end stage of the disease manifesting some kind of violent psychosis are nothing more than rumors at this point. What we know at this time is workers from Los Angeles International Airport were brought here to the Cedars-Sinai Hospital late last night. This morning, members of the LAPD SWAT stormed into the hospital and sounds of gunfire were heard almost immediately. When members of the team emerged from the building, many of these first responders had to be treated for bites and scratches they received while trying to contain the situation inside the hospital. Just what that situation was is still unclear. For KCLX Los Angeles, I'm Kate Malik. The University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle reported its first cases of the new disease today with hospital staff overwhelmed with... San Francisco announced its first cases of the still unnamed disease. Sacramento officials are reporting increasing numbers Portland of... Portland has begun containment procedures as infection rates soar across... The Texas Department of Health has coined the term wildfire outbreak. Incidents of disease so fast moving that local officials cannot hope to contain it. The first reports of infection came out of Sugarland and West University Place. But now, the entire Houston metropolitan area, from the Woodlands to the Galveston Coast, is buckling under the pandemic. For KCTX Houston, I'm Chuck Fleming. The Centers for Disease Control issued a press release stating that they cannot explain how those who succumb to the disease suddenly seem to reanimate with no sentient qualities, only the singular focus of consuming the living. I'm here at the Royal Air Force Base in Alconbury, which was also home to the American Air Force's 423rd Fighter Group. That is until this morning, when without warning, the entire air wing took off from the base, presumably heading back to the United States. Reports of similar evacuations are coming out of the Spangledom and the Rammstein Air Bases in Germany. This takes place against a backdrop of accelerating infection rates across Europe. Because of the heavy losses we've seen trying to regain control in cities like Los Angeles and Houston, it is my recommendation to the President, as Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, that we abandon these cities to the reanimated. I believe that by doing this, we will be in a better position to keep the disease from spreading and stabilize the pandemic front line. At least for now. Okay, we're going to do this in 20 seconds. I need everybody ready. Brian Andrews, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, good. How about my production team? EM, are you guys ready? Production is ready. All right, good. Good, good, good. We're going to do this in five, four, three, two. President Stevenson delivers a stirring message to the nation and the world today to mark the one-year anniversary of Patient One in the United States, but it comes as many question his handling of the outbreak. The military announces plans for a joint operation to retake key petroleum refining facilities in Texas in what will amount to the most aggressive military action since the beginning of the outbreak. 
but is there too much risk to the operation? And is the military being too insensitive to the living cost? Did he believe the danger was real, or was he just using that as an alibi? A South Carolina man faces charges of murdering his wife. He claims he thought she was infected and was about to reanimate. Prosecutors say he was having an affair and had been planning her murder for months. We'll have the details. The campaigns for mayor of Los Angeles heated up today as candidates traded barbs and insults heading into the special election this August. Is the blame game a constructive strategy to win the hearts and minds of the voters? Our correspondent will bring us the latest. And our discussion table this week will feature Dr. Krishna Singh from the Centers for Disease Control and Dr. Victoria Reynolds from the Harvard University School of Medicine. We'll discuss the outbreak, the latest thinking on the disease, ways to stay safe, and our progress towards possible treatments. You're listening to Radio Living America, and I'm your host, Brian Andrews. We begin this segment with a message from the president as the nation marks the anniversary of the first infected to arrive in the United States one year ago today. President Stevenson laid a wreath at the mass burial site in Bensley, Virginia, where it is believed 12,000 reanimated Americans were buried after being dispatched in military operations last October. The president spoke of unity and perseverance and delivered a speech some say was inspired by the oratory of Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill as they rallied their nations in a time of war. But not everyone was ready to jump on board. For more, we go to our correspondent, Chuck Fleming. The president arrived in Richmond early this morning, despite the wind and heavy rain, and started the day at the Bon Secours Hospital to meet with staff who had worked tirelessly in support of containment operations last October following an outbreak in the city's Chaco Slip District. He then made the nine-mile trip down Interstate 95 to Bensley to visit the Spray Pond Mass Burial Site, where it is believed as many as 1,500 Army and Marine casualties are buried with the infected. After laying a wreath, the president gave a speech in which he said this. On this, the anniversary of the pandemic infecting our shores, delivering to this nation and the world its greatest crisis, we remember the fallen and make a solemn oath to them, to ourselves, and to future generations that we will continue this fight. We will face our darkest fears. We will shoulder this burden, however great it may be. We will make any sacrifice. We will ensure that our species continues 100 generations from now when they write the history of the world, they will look back on us and proudly say, they were the guardians of humanity. But the president's words come at a time when he faces blistering criticism in his handling of the pandemic crisis, particularly early in the outbreak. California Governor Laura Chen, who many believe is a top challenger for the presidency in the next election cycle, had this to say from a survivor's charity event in the relocated state capital in Reading. I heard the president's speech today, and I thought it was another great example of one of his clinics on political platitudes. President Stevenson's failure to act has caused an incalculable amount of suffering for this country. We're not even talking about bad decision-making. We're talking about a lack of decision-making. Why didn't we prepare and improve security when the reports of infection and reanimation started coming from the international community. <laughs> I'll tell you why. 
because he was too busy hosting celebrities at the White House. Where was he when the disease started taking over in L.A.? And when it jumped to San Francisco and then Sacramento? I'll tell you where. I mean, we've all seen the pictures. He was on the golf course. The president will spend the night at the Norfolk Naval Base and then travel back to Washington tomorrow. Back to you, Brian. Chuck Fleming, thank you. After weeks of preparation, the U.S. military will be launching its most comprehensive actions of the pandemic, deploying air, sea, and ground forces to reclaim the oil refineries in the Galveston, Texas dead zone. While a controversial use of military assets, proponents of the plan argue that the U.S. must reestablish refining capacity or risk losing military and relief effectiveness. Our Kate Malik reports from St. Bernard Harbor. Thanks, Brian. St. Bernard Harbor, like all harbors in southeastern Louisiana, is a beehive of activity. And make no mistake, this is the real thing. Marine and Army infantry are assembling here in preparation for an invasion of the Galveston area with the aim of retaking the oil refining facilities there. At a press conference from his mobile headquarters in New Orleans, Task Force Commander Admiral William McCall had this to say. Good morning. I'm William McCall, Commander, U.S. Sixth Fleet. With me is Admiral Casper Taylor, Chief of Naval Operations. As some of you are aware, we have been concentrating military forces and port facilities located in the northern region of the Gulf of Mexico. At 0400 hours on Tuesday, a task force representing elements of every branch of the armed forces will conduct Operation Southern Lights, an amphibious assault to retake the occupied oil refineries of Pad 3, located in Galveston, Texas. The assault will begin with AC-130 Ghost Riders of the U.S. Air Force 4th Special Operations Squadron dropping GBU-43 Moabs on the city of Houston in an attempt to neutralize any reanimates that could threaten the landings. At 0600 hours, a force from the 2nd Marine Division, supported by the Army's 75th Ranger Regiment, will make concurrent landings at Pelican Island, where they will then proceed to the Olympic Petroleum Refinery and the United Crude Refinery. The second landing will occur at Tarpey Park, and then proceed down Route 197 to the southwestern Nautilus, Texas City Refinery. Warships of the U.S. Navy's 6th Fleet will remain on station in Galveston Bay to provide operational support. The Air Force has been dropping leaflets on Houston this week, alerting any survivors held in living strongholds within the city that they need to evacuate. And if they can travel south to Brazoria, Texas, an evacuation station has been established by the Navy SEAL Team 8 at the Brazoria National Wildlife Refuge. It is the use of the MOAB, or Massive Ordnance Air Blast, that is causing controversy, as it is believed there are some 6,000 to 10,000 survivors hanging on in the dead city in living strongholds. This large-yield bomb, with a destructive capacity second only to a nuclear weapon, would give those trapped in the city little hope of survival. Texas Senator Tim McCallum gave an emotional address on the Senate floor today. This action to use the Moab bomb on the city of Houston is a matter of organized mass murder and nothing less. Well, there are still thousands of people living in the city 
And to expect them to just get up and walk 50 miles in the summer heat through one of the most infected regions in the country is a perverse fantasy. Listen to him. My colleagues try to talk to me about acceptable casualty rates. Let me tell you something. If it was your mother or father or sister or brother that was stuck behind the line in Houston, that casualty rate's gonna be 100%. But with over two million reanimates estimated to be walking the Houston streets, military strategists are concerned the exercises could coax them out of the city and down to the landing areas. Experts argue that Petroleum Administration Defensive District 3, or Pad 3, represents nearly 50% of U.S. refining capacity. And if it isn't retaken, the human cost could ultimately be much, much higher. From St. Bernard Harbor, I'm Kate Mallon. When we return, he says he killed his wife because he thought there was an imminent threat. The prosecutors say it was all a sinister plan. Hi, Kathy. How's things? I haven't seen you since the Series B drive. Oh, hey, Maggie. Great to see you. Has it really been since the last war bond drive? I'm pretty sure that's the last time I saw you. Wow, that's a big cart of groceries, Kathy. How do you manage to buy all that on your family's ration book? Well, Bill and I just had another, I mean, took in another child on the CRP. CRP? Yeah, the Child Relocation Program. When we take in a child from the program, we get a ration increase equivalent to almost two children. Our latest is Pete. Poor thing. He was one of the last to be evacuated when Seattle fell. His mom is missing and presumed reanimated, and his father is currently serving full time in the army. Your latest? Yeah. Pete's the third child we've taken out of the program. It's a lot to manage, but they're great kids and our kids love them. And I'm not gonna lie, the extra ration credits definitely help. You and John should look into it. It feels great to make a difference. I definitely will. Where do you get the information again? Just call your local Child Relocation Bureau. They'll schedule an interview and explain everything you need to know about the program and its benefits. Thanks, Kathy. I'm going to call today. If something happened to you, and your children were left with no one to take care of them. Wouldn't you want one of your fellow citizens to step in and help? Inquire today about the Children's Relocation Program and find out how you can make a difference in a child's life. Our next story takes us to South Carolina, where a man stands accused of the murder of his wife. The man claims she had been bitten and was about to reanimate, but prosecutors say it's an obvious case of foul play. For more on this story, we take you to RLA's Miles Duggan in Greenville, South Carolina. Bill Stapleton appeared in court today. Order in the court! I said silence in my courtroom or I'll throw out the light here. William Stapleton, you stand accused of the capital crime of murder in the first degree. How do you plead? Not guilty, Your Honor. Stapleton, a 47-year-old father of four, contends that his wife of 30 years, Tammy Stapleton, had been bitten by one of the infected, and she was beginning to reanimate when he shot her in the head with his hunting rifle. But the Greenville County prosecutor had this to say. The defendant had been carrying on an extramarital affair with a Spartanburg woman for over two years. 
And we have many texts, many, many texts between the two of them where he repeatedly talks about taking care of things once and for all and finally getting her done. Furthermore, the medical examiner's office determined that the suspicious bite in question actually happened post-mortem and that the person who bit Mrs. Stapleton was missing the same three front teeth that Bill Stapleton is missing. I view this not, not guilty plea as Mr. Stapleton's way of saying he thinks I'm the dumbest prosecutor in South Carolina. We visited Stapleton's neighborhood and had an opportunity to catch up with one of his neighbors. Everybody in the subdivision knew Bill was getting on with that waitress from the Denny's up in Spartanburg. Pammy definitely knew. And her mom and them were giving her all kinds of shit about it. She even told my wife she was fixing to grab the kids and leave his ass. In a written statement to the press, Stapleton's attorney said, At a time when we are all being encouraged to dispatch the reanimated as quickly as possible, regardless of how hard it may be, it is a tragedy that my client should be accused of this heinous crime, when he should be commended for protecting his family by committing a difficult act that will torture him for the rest of his life. Reporting from Greenville, South Carolina, I'm Miles Duggan. It's been 11 months since the city of Los Angeles fell, but a government in exile has been formed and a special election for mayor is being held this September, with two main candidates appearing on a debate stage together for the first time in Arizona. Billionaire businessman Michael Jacobs and former Los Angeles Public Works chief Gerald Richardson took the stage at 8 p.m. last night and neither candidate held back, creating a tense debate that included personal insults, questions of mental competence, and blame for the city's quick fall. For more, we go to Laura Sanders on assignment in Tempe, Arizona. Candidates arrived here late last night for the first of two debates in the mayoral race for Los Angeles. And while the candidates began the evening amicably, things quickly devolved into a contentious back and forth with both candidates slinging insults and making accusations, as evidenced by this tense exchange. Forget for a moment that the city of Angels is now a dead city. Try to remember what LA was like before the pandemic crisis. It was a disgrace. Our infrastructure was in terrible shape. There was garbage everywhere. And we had the worst homeless crisis in the nation. And a once beautiful downtown didn't look much different before the crisis than it does now. Gerald Richardson was one of the city's top bureaucrats. And that was his mess. If he couldn't manage the city before the crisis, how in the hell can he be trusted to manage the liberation and repopulation of the city? You know, I find it really interesting that you knew about the condition of downtown, Mr. Jacobs. I didn't think you ever went there. I wasn't aware that you spent time away from swimsuit model-filled all-night parties that you were famous for at your mansion in Malibu. You know what that's called, Gerald? It's called winning, and it's something you know nothing about. And let me tell you something. If you knew how to run a city, I'd still be in my place in Malibu. And the venomous barbs did not stop there. How dare you question my commitment to Los Angeles? I'll have you know I was one of the last members of government to leave the city. That's not what I heard. How dare you? Why don't you tell it to the 10 million Angelinos that never got out of the city, Gerald? You... You, you asshole. I can stop being an asshole anytime, Gerald, but you'll always be a loser. While there are currently no plans to try to retake Los Angeles, 
a displaced government has been formed to help manage the estimated 1 million Angelinos that escaped the city and are scattered in uninvested areas across the country. The special election is being held to fill a seat last held by Mayor Steve Takata, who went missing early in the crisis and is presumed dead or reanimated. Residents of Los Angeles can pick up their ballots at any post office across the country with proof of residence. Ballots must be returned by mail no later than September 1st. Reporting from Tempe, Arizona, I'm Laura Sanders. After the break, we'll go to the RLA discussion table to break down the outbreak and share the latest thinking on the crisis. Kelly? Brad? Hi! Wow! This might be too soon, but you look even better than your profile pic. <laughs> Never too soon to tell me I look good. But no offense, Brad, but I wish your profile pic could have let me know how you'd smell. Oh, I'm sorry, but who can just shower whenever they want since the water treatment plant got run over by the reanimated? Why not just use fresh ups? Fresh ups? Yeah, the one use sanitary towel that cleans, disinfects, and deodorizes. It comes in six great scents, and the best part is they don't count towards your ration credits. No ration credits? How about this? You run to the drugstore down the block, and I'll order us a couple of drinks. I'll be moving double time. Oh, and Brad? Yeah? My favorite scent is lavender. You want to get cleaned up before your next hookup. Before your next hookup, be smart and use fresh ups. We're fortunate enough to be joined today by Dr. Krishna Singh, head of infectious disease at the Centers for Disease Control, and Dr. Victoria Reynolds, professor of molecular biology at the Harvard University School of Medicine. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Singh, let me begin with you. What's the latest thinking around the disease? Are we making progress in determining what the actual cause of the pandemic is? Unfortunately, we've been unable to determine just what we're up against. Our latest thinking is that it's viral, but we just aren't sure. We haven't ruled out that it could be a bacterial or fungal, but the onset of symptoms, or even the lack of onset of symptoms, looks very viral. When you say lack of onset of symptoms, what exactly do you mean? Well, most people become symptomatic very quickly. They become exposed to the pathogen, and usually within a few hours, they've begun to show symptoms that resemble influenza. Once that happens, they typically expire within a few hours and reanimate within a minute or two. However, there are patients that represent maybe 10% of the infected that can go weeks without being symptomatic. They have the disease and they can spread the disease, but they aren't showing symptoms, and this kind of latency is one of the reasons we think it could be viral. Also, there's an even smaller group, we're not sure how big, but certainly less than 2%, who represent a massive risk for spreading the infection that we refer to as latent controllers. Latent controllers? Yes, it's a term that was coined back in the days before we had a vaccine for the more virulent strains of Ebola virus we saw coming out of Western Africa. A latent controller has the antibody that develops into the Ebola virus 3B, and they can pass it along to a new host where it continues its natural progression to Ebola. But, in the latent controller, it never progresses beyond the antibody stage, and the patient can live a normal life while always testing positive for the antibody that causes the disease. 
When the earliest cases of this new pathogen were reported among deforestation workers in the Amazon rainforest in Brazil, we believe a latent controller contracted the disease and was considered to be uninfected by those conducting containment operations. Dr. Reynolds, that brings us to the issue of transmission. What's the latest there, and is there anything people can do to prevent transmission? Well, it appears that this disease spreads through any exchange of bodily fluid. If one gets bitten or scratched by a reanimated person, it is highly likely that the contagion will be passed on. It's not a guarantee, but it is highly likely. The problem is that it seems to spread with limited effectiveness through fluid exchange. And given that the end stage of the disease has flu-like symptoms, it appears to be spreading through exposure to a person who's coughing, sneezing, and discharging mucus from their nose and eyes. We've seen many cases where people have faced blistering discrimination, sometimes including acts of violence when they begin to show flu-like symptoms. Yes, and most of the time it's still just the flu. Is there anything people can do to minimize their risk of infection? If you've been bitten or scratched, I would advise treating the wound with rubbing alcohol and hydrogen peroxide. We have no evidence that this will lower the risk of infection, but these agents are antimicrobial and antiviral and it's not impossible that it would stop infection. In terms of daily living, I would advise people to wash their hands often and try to maintain a sanitary work and home environment. Also, when you wash your hands, try using a sanitizing soap. Finally, try to avoid touching your face, particularly your eyes and mouth, as much as possible. Dr. Singh, what exactly is the physical state of the reanimated, and why are they so consumed with the idea of consuming us? Well, first off, you have to realize that to the reanimated, consuming us isn't an idea, it's just something they do. To have an idea, you need to have a functioning brain. Now, we've studied captured reanimates at our facilities at the CDC, and they meet every medical definition of a dead person. They have no heartbeat, there is no cellular activity, and no brain activity whatsoever which leaves us puzzled because it seems the only way you can deanimate them is to destroy the brain. I guess to answer your question, we don't know why they want to consume us. Or why they don't want to consume each other. Or for that matter, why does nothing want to consume them? Under normal circumstances, if a cadaver were left out in the open environment, you would expect every manner of larvae and carnivorous insect to begin consuming it. But we haven't seen anything like that. They simply defy everything our science knows about the natural world. Dr. Reynolds, what should a person do if they fear they've become infected, or someone they know has become infected? Alert local law enforcement immediately. I know it's hard, but the lethality of this pathogen has caused for terrible patient compliance. Everyone is hoping they're one of the very few who won't become symptomatic. If someone you know is symptomatic, be prepared to destroy their brain the moment they expire. As Dr. Singh previously mentioned, reanimation happens very quickly, and you can't waste time. Well, Godspeed to both of you and your work, and thank you again for being here. That concludes this week's program. For Radio Living America, I'm Brian Andrews, asking that you stay safe, stay alert, and stay in the fight.